Welcome to episode number 92 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is a podcast where we're building a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney. Today's episode, we have part two of a two-part series that's based on an Ask Me Anything session that we completed inside the Dust Safety Academy. This Ask Me Anything session was with Jason Reason from Seam Group, and we were covering a remote dust hazard analysis. In last week's episode, episode 91, we covered the first half of the Ask Me Anything session, where we covered a lot of different aspects around remote DHAs. We cut off last week's episode when the topic started getting into many different other areas related to combustible dust safety and related to dust hazard analysis, which frequently happens for these Ask Me Anything sessions. The audience is encouraged to submit anything that's really on their mind of importance at that time for combustible dust safety, and we get that answered by experts from around the world. So the purpose of today's episode then is really twofold. One is to give you a glimpse inside of the Dust Safety Academy where we do trainings like this every two weeks. And also just to share this great information because this interview we did with Jason and this Ask Me Anything session we did contained a lot of great insights and expertise from his experience with combustible dust. If you're interested in the Dust Safety Academy and joining the membership there, you can find more information at dustsafetyacademy.com. Or you can go to the show notes of this podcast episode at dustsafetyscience.com slash 92. You'll get access to the community there, the discussion forums, but also replays of these trainings that we do every two weeks inside the academy. If I take a look at our upcoming list, we have trainings around hazard monitoring for bucket elevators and drag belt conveyors given by Brian Knapp of 4B Components. That's another Ask Me Anything session like the one you'll hear today. We have Michael Merrington from Index Middle East talking about understanding the international approach to explosion safety. We have an Ask Me Anything session with Diane Cave on NFPA 664. We have Glenn Serduke coming on to talk about working with fire marshals, AHJs, and fire departments just over the next couple of months in the Dust Safety Academy. If you're listening to this when it comes live, then these are the trainings that will be coming up. If you're listening to this in the future, you'll have replays to all of these trainings and more as we continue to build up that library of educational material inside the Dust Safety Academy. So without further ado, we're going to jump right into part two of the Ask Me Anything session with Jason Reason. So you are um, chair of NFA 664, is that the woodworking? Yep. Yeah, so that's the woodworking standard. So there's some questions on that, and I know you do a lot of metals as well. So in terms of the metal side, uh, there's a question about, they, they mentioned they're trying to keep the number of dust collectors down, and is it all right to mix mild steel from a grinding operation with mild steel from a buffing operation and this is actually a question that went into the dusting academy a few weeks ago and people were talking about as well in the standards is there anything mentioned about these mixing of different operations in the dust there well whenever you do a dha related to metals you've always got to look at the possibility of thermite reactions where you mix a metal with a metal oxide so i mean i get questions all i had somebody combining i think it was aluminum chips with plastic and wood in the same dust collector so that just made a complete mess, honestly. But um, if you're going to combine steel and steel, you should be okay. I mean, it's, it's iron and iron. Particle size-wise, obviously, the one from the buffing is going to be a lot smaller. So it may increase um, the explosibility of just having that one stream by itself because that KST would probably be a little higher. Yeah, you, you could mix them in the same dust collector, but the DHA would definitely need to look at you know, the possibility of a thermite reaction with whatever else is going in there or any other kind of chemical reaction that could be caused by mixing different dust streams. 
Yeah, and I think we have another question, I probably from the same individual, about aluminum and brass. So boundary that has these two materials and you're talking about, you know, do they need a whole different set of tooling for the aluminum and the brass, or can they be going to the same the same system and to the same dust collector? Yeah, it's hard to generalize because I get that question a lot, as I'm sure you do, Chris. Can you mix this and this without knowing the exact process? But, you know, with foundry or anything else, you know, aluminum is obviously pretty explosive depending on how small you're going to get it and how oxidized it is. That's the, the key factor here that we don't know is how oxidized is the steel, the aluminum, the titanium, whatever else you got. Because obviously that's going to decrease the explosibility. But I can tell you that aluminum as long as it's small enough, it's going to be explosible at some ratio. The brass should not be uh, because brass is non-explosible dust. In fact, it's, they use it in tools for non-spark producing tools. So that may inhibit the explosibility of the actual aluminum potentially. So you're probably better off getting, working with a lab that's experienced that can give you some guidelines on sampling and testing what you actually have in your line because you may end up having non-exposable mixture, may need to be worried about upset conditions and things as well. But I, do, I, I did look at the Gestex database, and there was some explosibility for brass, but I haven't, I haven't seen a test myself, so I wasn't sure, but it was pretty low. I, yeah, we've tested it before. It's not come back. But, yeah, but, I mean, to Chris's point, I mean, yeah, you definitely, you definitely need to look at uh, testing and it should be part of the DHA, whether it's done remotely or, uh, you know, on site. There you go. I got you back on topic. Take that. Um, but uh, the, the best advice I have for people, even when you're doing a DHA or even if you're going to test, is have somebody do a sampling strategy. I, I know 652, NFPA 652 calls it a sampling plan. I, whatever, I call it a sampling strategy. But what that is, is basically you determine what samples you should take from where to determine that minimum information you need. because I have seen people waste fifty to $100,000 worth of money on unnecessary testing and still not get the data they need. So, so this is a good case of, I, I would definitely taste, test that mixture of aluminum and, and you know, the brass in there to basically see if it's actually explosible or not. And if you have a good lab, they can actually do a material scan on that to figure out how much aluminum, how much brass, how much other junk is in there. So you can actually know what type of dust you're dealing with. And you can do that with the steel too. Um, the, the steel grinding and polishing, you mix it up, you make a slug out of it, you polish the top of it, and then you can look at it with a scanning electron microscope. But uh, you look at it and you can, you can see what, what's actually in there. Is it iron? Um, I tried to do some testing for a research project after Hagenase on iron dust. I had three iron dust samples and none of them were iron. <laughs> like they all had um, large constituents of other stuff like I'll say cobalt and um, other you know magnesium, other metals that were in, were embedded in the material as well. So that's that's really off topic. That's something you should be talking to a to a, a lab about uh, if you're you're going to be testing. But sampling strategy is a really important thing for that. Yeah, if the DHA is done right remotely or on site, the sampling strategy should be part of it. So because that's going to tell you if you actually need to do testing or not, or can you rely on historical data? I get that question all the time. Uh, here, here's another one that you get all the time, so you probably have an answer for it. Is uh, <clears throat> isolation damper needed on both, and this is in the sawdust collector, generally needed on both the inlet and the return duct, or just the return duct for a, for a sawdust dust collector? Well, I'm assuming they're talking about the inlet for the exhaust duct and then the drum or whatever is connected to it for the outlet. That's what I'm assuming we're talking about, but 
I think inlet and return air duct. Okay. For the inlet, yes. Uh, you need some type of explosion protection, generally for a um, for a uh, bag house or something like that, or cartridge dust collector collecting sawdust. It's going to be some type of backdraft damper, generally. If you're going to recycle the air, which is what NFPA calls it, that's what it, when you take uh, the the duct off the fan or the clean side, quote unquote, and you duct it back into the facility. Um, you do that basically because it helps decrease your cost, you know, and redoing your facility. You don't need a, an entire makeup air system by doing that way. If you do that, which several woodworkers do, you do need some type of protection on that because I've actually did an incident, including one with OSHA, where a dust, there was a deflagration inside of a dust collector. It not only went back through the facility through that exhaust duct, it went across the fan, ruined it, went up the duct, and went right back in the facility through that duct. And everyone who was hurt from it was 400 feet away. So typically what people do on that uh, recycling in the air or when you've got that thing coming off the exhaust fan for the duct is they put an abort gate on it, which generally those work as long as they're maintained correctly, generally. We have not seen the case where we've had, fortunately there's no ignition, um, but there was a large high school program that I, I know of in some of the Canadian provinces that looked at a lot of the dust collectors at high schools and found that some of them with the return air had dislodged bags and broken bags and actually had dust that was pouring back in above fall ceilings above your wood shop. Um, so combine Jason's experience with that scenario um, and you're, you're talking about an entire room lost uh, and probably a good portion of the building. My best advice is if you don't have to recycle your air, don't do it. Just exhaust it outside. Now here in the States, a lot, some people do it because it affects the clean air permit, but you know, it's, it's honestly, it's safer just to exhaust it outside. If you don't need to return that air back in, I would not do it. Okay. So we, we have about 15 minutes here. So I do have a couple other questions. If you have anything that's on remote DHAs, I'll bump it to the top. Um, so you can ask in the Q and a and make sure we cover that. Um, and I'll, I'll ask this one because I know you're, cause I don't quite know what it is, but it might mean more to you. Um, so it's an NFPA 664, the threshold, I'm not sure what the threshold for what, so you could ask that, but the threshold is 1500 CFM or something. What are the thresholds of any other NFPA codes? I'm not sure if you can decipher what, what that's about. I think they're talking about the exception. NFPA, um, and if I'm wrong, they can, they can correct me. <laughs> um, but there's an exception in the front, and 664 is one of the only standards that has this, that says that if you have... I think it's 5,000 square feet or, or, uh, and, or and uh, 1,500 um, CFM, the standard doesn't apply to you. So that was made for small little wood shops, like in people's garages and stuff like that. And uh, it's an and on there, so you have to meet both of those. So I believe that's what they're talking about, because that 1,500 number, I know I've gotten several questions about that over the years. So, it, yeah, what it is, is, is it's an exception that basically says it, it exempts the smaller facilities, which could include high schools if they're small enough. But generally, they're, they're below the 5,000, those type of facilities, but they're above the 1,500, so they get kicked in anyway. But if you're below both, like if you have an enclosureless collector and just one enclosureless collector and, you know, in a 2,000-foot shop, 664 doesn't apply. I'm not aware of any other things like that in the other standards. I know 652 doesn't apply to retail and farms and stuff like that. There's some exceptions for those. 
and I think 484 has some kind of thing in there too about something. I can't remember what it is, but there is an exception that no one ever meets. Um, but uh, it's in there that that standard may not apply to you too. I've never seen someone actually meet it. But uh, yeah, I think that's what to talk about. But as far as the other NFPA standards, I'm not seeing a lot of those type of exceptions, if you want to call them that, or things to get you out of those standards. That makes sense. And I understand now where the where that came from. Um, you think of like, uh, if you're running a a, belt, a, a sander, a disc sander, and it's got the, the sock on the back that lets the air through, that's a little closureless dust collector. And obviously it's a, you know, a smaller amount of volume. You see bigger ones at, at uh, wood shops as well. I think that's the cutoff then for when FBA 664 would apply, depending on how large that system is. So that makes sense. I'm not sure if this is, it's, I'll read it as it's typed. It might be, can you distinguish, but do you distinguish between a backdraft damper, a back blast damper, and explosion isolation gate? Are those things different for, for, uh, from your understanding? Well, most of the time I just call it an EIV, an explosion isolation valve. So that's a backdraft damper. People call them different things, but you know, essentially a thing with the thing that flutters and then it closes from pressure. There's no sensor or anything that does it. It just flaps like that if it works and it's maintained right. And it's certified and it's tested and certified correctly, which we're running into problems with that on uh, potentially on one, one on one type of valve. But um, <clears throat> if they're talking about the actual gate, which there is a thing that um, I know Fike and several other people make, which is, I call it a guillotine. It's really what it is. Um, but it's, it's activated with a pressure sensor that will come down like that. And it literally looks like a guillotine to me. Uh, but they call that an EIV as well, an explosion isolation valve. But that will also prevent it. So they all operate on the same principle. There's some type of barrier there that prevents it from going back in the facility. Some of them are passive. Some of them are active. But, I mean, most of the time I see the passive ones like the backdraft dampers. Yeah, and if you go into the Digital Dust Safety Conference presentations on day, cameras day two or day three, um, Burke, and I'm not going to try to say his last name because it looks French, but it's not pronounced French. Burke from IEP has a presentation on, on isolation devices, and he goes through passive options and active options um, and, and talks about all the different uh, types. So you can, you can go check out that, uh, that presentation there to get more information there. So a couple other, and these ones are, a um, little bit actually this one's a good one for you what are the dust consultants stances i assume you're the dust consultant in this case on the use of water in immersion separators for 3d printing in highly combustible dust metal dust subject to oxidation did i say that right or at least enough that you, you understand i think so i think so i think i even know who asked that question but i won't say uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah because i think he's been dying to ask me that question that's why you're here <laughs> yeah. Now you've got me cornered. I have to answer it. I mean, for the most part in, in additive manufacturing, I, uh, I've not ever seen any, I shouldn't say ever, but I, I never have since I've been doing additive manufacturing for four and a half years uh, or 3D printing. Somebody used a non-immersion separation vacuum for metals. I've just not seen it. That doesn't mean you can't do it, but most people use some type of immersion separator just so everybody understands what that is. It's type of vacuum where there's a water level and the pipe comes underneath the water level. So you immerse it just what it is, immersion separator. So it's a wet type back and then you just empty out the sludge out of there. I've not seen any problems with titanium, uh, which is 
TIE 64, which is a type of alloy they use in the AM all the time. I'm not seeing any problems with that. Now the aluminums, with how they oxidize, and when they get in the water, they're going to release hydrogen. They release more hydrogen, titanium does. I have seen some potential reactions with that, including one client that actually showed me they took a drum out of the the sludge out of the vacuum uh, and uh, accidentally mixed it with titanium waste, which I probably wouldn't have done, but they weren't paying attention. And the 55-gallon drum was actually bubbling with hydrogen. You could see it. They put it underneath a vent so they could vent out the hydrogen, but it had bubbled for four weeks. So it was actually reacting for four weeks straight, nonstop. So there is some potential problems there when you collect aluminum and these type of vacuums with hydrogen gas generations. I've not seen anybody hit an LEL or a low explosion limit yet for hydrogen, but you get enough of it, you could. So those type of things need to be taken into account as well as the vacuum and how it's constructed. Cause I know there's one in Germany right now and I won't mention who it is. If someone has a question and they're worried about this, again, the DHA, if they know what they're doing, would we'll catch it. But I know for a fact, there's one in, in Germany that is not approved here in the States. And I have to tell people every time I see it, you just wasted $12,000 buying that vacuum. You have to basically send it back, throw it away, do something. It's not approved to collect metal of any type. And it's an immersion separator. Yeah, I think so. In a big, to, to summarize that, that's probably a, a bigger question that can be answered in a in a uh, in a Zoom call. Ask me anything session. You might need to have someone coming in and look at that system. So we have certainly water and and combustible metals will form hydrogen. Not all combustible metals, but some, and some at different conditions. So if it's in a hotter environment, it could be you know more apt to do that. Um, I've seen cases where very fine aluminum they're in sealed bags under nitrogen you open the bag up and just the moisture in the air is enough to, to get, make it catch fire so you open up the plastic bag and, and then you have uh, you know, a, a flaming fire there uh, causes issues with testing of that type of material so it's it's something that you really need to bring somebody in for that, that knows what they're talking about for for that no real blanket comment to be made on combustible metal dust as a whole in that one, I think you, you really need to look at what the material you're specifically handling is. Yeah. Especially for AM because they're starting to get a lot more exotic with some of these things uh, with their alloys and everything. So uh, there were two certification questions and again, anything that, you know, if you don't know the answer for right away, we can, uh, Jason fortunately is, is very forthcoming with the, is, is amount of knowledge. So I don't think he's not going to answer anything, but um, on this one, uh, do you see anywhere where, Question says consultants, but but maybe uh, AHJs or even consultants that are recognizing ATEX certification in lieu of CSA or UL or NTRL certifications for combustible dust. You kind of mentioned it with the German example of of, of some that aren't being accepted here. I don't know if those. I'm trying to think of how I want to say it nicely, Chris. Um, yeah, um, but uh, in the United States, this is all I can, I can only speak for the U.S. ATEX is really no better than a post-it note. I, that's the nicest way I can say it. I've said that to several people. I deal with it all the time with these 3D printers and vacuums and everything else. Even some of the explosion protection equipment like the valves come here, ATEX certified. You know, in terms of electrical, if you're gonna try to do an electrical listing, it has to be listed here in the States or through what OSHA calls a NERDL. That's my favorite acronym. Nationally Recognized Testing Laboratory. 
Yeah, NRTL or NERDLE, Nationally Recognized Testing Laboratory. And ATEX and OSHA is clear about this. In fact, I put it in my DHA reports just to show people. ATEX is not considered a NERDLE under OSHA. United Laboratories, CSA, FM Global, there's a few others. I mean, you can go to OSHA. They give you the list of them. Um, it has to be through one of them. And there's ways to spot it. A good example of that is if you have metal dust and you get a, some like a vacuum or something or you get a motor or something and it says uh, zone 22 or which for those of you who don't know, that's class two, division two, group E for metals. There is no such thing as zone 22 in the United States. We don't have a division two for metals. That's part of the problem with ATEX and working with the United States. They just don't work. So unfortunately, those there's, let me put it this way. I've not seen an AHJ accept it uh, for electrical. And any DHA should catch it because I can see that EX. You can't miss it. And then I'm going to start asking questions of, is this electrical equipment truly certified? And worst case scenario is you may have to rip it out and replace it with something that is NERDLE approved by somebody. I think the, the kind of synopsis there isn't necessarily that the ATEX certification isn't any good. It's just that there's no harmonized approach there and you can't just translate one to the other. And beyond that, there's no recognized how one might translate to another for right or for wrong. That's just where we're at today. Correct. And, and if people were wondering, I don't see that change at any time soon. Not in my lifetime. I, I don't, it hasn't changed in 20 years. It's not going to change now. Um, I just don't see OSHA accepting ATEX anytime soon. So we'll finish this up. The last question, because we've got it three times while we were sitting here. I was waiting until the end. <laughs> you may even know what it is. How do you expect that AHJs um, and the industry as a whole are, are going to react after the September 7th, 2020 deadline in terms of accepting late DHAs, in terms of um, completion deadlines? Just I, I'm sure people are asking you and will be asking more coming in upcoming months. But how's this uh, September? Does it does it mean anything for industry? Does it mean anything for for citations? Just what should people be thinking about in regards to that from from your perspective? <laughs> so I'll, I'll answer it a couple ways, and then I mean we can keep going if you want on questions. It's fine. I'm not going anywhere this afternoon. So, but um, for this question, first off, I get this question a lot, and I'm surprised no one asked it. Is the coronavirus going to affect the September seventh deadline? Answer is no, we are not changing it. We've had no discussions on it. I, I don't think the will of the committee is there, in my opinion. That is only my opinion. So even if it came up, I don't think it would be changed, regardless of what's going on with the coronavirus right now. So that September 7th deadline is going to stay where it is. And I've heard no discussion from the NFPA committees from 652, which I sit on, and the other ones to change it anytime soon. Um, that being said, I know... Some OSHAs in terms of state plans and some insurance companies right now are in a holding pattern on that deadline. What I mean by that is they're giving you a grace period saying essentially you've had so many years now to do it. You need to get it done. After that deadline passes, you know, what happens? I, I don't know if I can speak to that or Chris, we're not AHAs, um, but from what I've heard from my people, as far as from the OSHA people, the state plans that I know of, um, the insurance, even some fire marshals, everything's on the table. 
And what that means is that they could cite you, they could stop your project, they could pull your uh, insurance. I don't know if they're going to do that. I, I have no idea. I just heard they could. And so that being said, if you told them, look, because uh, I know the virus obviously slowed some things down, but I have a feeling in another month or two, it's going to come back because we get clients call us all the time saying we need our DHA done by September. I got it. I know why you need it done, but they're going to start piling up again like they were before the whole virus thing slowed everything down. I have a feeling. So I think as long as you told the AHJ to say, look, we know we got to do it. You know, we're, we're taking our time with this. We're going to get someone who's qualified, but we may not be able to do it till October. I think they're going to be okay with that. As long as you show them you're making an effort towards completing that DHA. So I think as long as that can be shown that, look, we, we're, we're trying here, you know, this takes some time. And if you, if you do a DHA in the right way, selecting, especially if you go outside to do it, selecting that provider, you want to take your time with that. Don't, like Chris said, don't just do it on price or, you know, on one certain thing. You've, you've got to analyze several things and that does take time. But every impression I get is after that deadline, some of them are going to, the gloves are off at that point. And, but if you show that you're working towards it, I, I think they're going to work with you. I agree. And I just, I won't give you the exact company name, but as Google OSHA cites company for not performing DHA. Um, there have been some citations already levied by OSHA. Usually something else has happened, but then they also apply a citation on for not having done the DHA or not even starting the process already applied. So that would suggest that by the end of the September deadline, they'll, they'll be looking to, to do that more. Neither Jason and I can guarantee what's going to happen, uh, but if you're, you're interested in, in that, uh, you know, there's some other, other piece of information there. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've had clients that have called me freaking out because OSHA showed up and tested their dust. And just so you know, if they test your dust, you've got about a month to two months to get the results back because everything goes to Salt Lake City here in the U.S. Uh, in Utah. you got about a month or two. And my best advice I tell people is do a DHA now. Hire someone because every time they've done that, even though you will get cited by OSHA for some things for combustible dust, the citations will be less. And especially because you're showing, look, we're investing all this money in the DHA. We're making an effort. We honestly didn't know we had combustible dust. I mean, be honest with them. Don't lie. And if you do that, I, I've never seen it work out negatively where OSHA throws a book at you uh, because they know you're making an effort at least. So, I mean, the worst thing you could do is have them test the dust. They come back. It's explosive. And at that point, it's whichever compliance officer you get, you may get a lot of citations. You may get a few. It's luck of the draw at that point. I think as long as you're showing that you're making an effort, the AHJ, whoever it is, is going to take that into account. Thank you for that. I think that's a great place to, to leave off this of our, our first Ask Me Anything session. And it truly was Ask Me Anything. <laughs> we, we, went, uh, we went a couple different directions, but I think that was really uh, good. And we've actually getting some comments back here. Great session. Um, feedback that they, they really learned a lot. So Jason, I want to say thank you for coming on. I appreciate you taking your, your time um, to, to do this. And I'm, I'm sure the rest of the audience does as well. And the folks will be watching the replays. Yeah, yeah, no problem. I'm sure Chris will put my contact information up there if anybody has any other questions or wants to ask me anything. You know, Chris will give you my contact information. I'm more than happy to answer any questions. Certainly. And the next training session that's coming up will be in two weeks' time. We have uh, Jeremy Slon White from Remby, and we'll be going through an example dust hazard analysis and actually looking at how the report can be built out of the the, the, the actual processing operation. So, kind of soup to nuts from 
the simplified process to what a, a DHA report might look like. So tune in for that. And I appreciate everyone tuning in. And we will uh, continue to have these training sessions within the Dust Safety Academy. Definitely send feedback to us on what you want to, want to uh, cover. And last comment there was great job to you both, informative and entertaining at the same time. <laughs> I think we'll, we'll leave off with that. Thanks, Jason. Thank you for everyone else for tuning in. And we'll be talking soon. Thanks, everybody. So that's it for this episode of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. In the episode, we went through this Ask Me Anything session with Jason Reason that started on remote dust hazard analysis. Then in part two, this week's episode of the podcast, went through the other questions that came in through the community on topics like mixing of mild steel and different types of metals, on combustibility parameters of different metals like aluminum and brass, and a PA664, and exceptions that are found there, uh, mini DHAs, different pieces of equipment, and certification through ATEX, CSA, UL, NRTL, and different certified bodies internationally and in North America. As always, you can find the links that were mentioned in this podcast episode at dustsafetyscience.com slash 92. If you're interested in being a member inside the Dust Safety Academy and getting access to these types of trainings that we do there and access to the community forum and access to the digital dust safety conference replays from 2020, you can do that at dustsafetyacademy.com. Have a safe and productive week ahead, and I appreciate everything you're doing in industries handling combustible dust to make them safer every day around the world. Thank you.